Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Great to connect. It is the lucky 7th of July. Summer is going by. Wow. Eight more weeks until Labor Day. What's up in the Spear household this weekend, Sean? Are you going to find a place to cool off? Do you have like a palatial pool? Maybe a, I don't know, Tony Robbins, like ice cold plunge pot or something just to... (laughs) No, we have one of those blow-up pools, and I was saying to the team that when these kids get to bed later tonight, I might have to sit plunk down in myself. Um, it's pretty warm. The best part of this weekend, though, is my parents are coming, so we might be able to pawn the kids off and um, actually get some sleep for a change. Nice. Well, talking about uh, temperatures heating up, we've got to start the show with uh, the developments around Bill C-18, uh, some really strident rhetoric uh, out of the prime minister uh, late this week, kind of comparing the fight against uh, Meta in particular around uh, its refusal to come on board with the act and compensate news organizations through some kind of new collective bargaining agreement about the value of the links that they post to the platform. All that led him to say, you know, Canada's fighting for democracy in the Ukraine. We're fighting for democracy in the Second World War, and we're going to fight for democracy again when it comes to Meta, um, and I assume Google thrown in that um, clutch also. Stuart, are you surprised this week? You know, it's not just the minister now, uh, Rodriguez at Heritage. It's the prime minister drawing a pretty strong political line here saying in effect we're not walking this back we're not ready to compromise is this all just negotiating and posturing i've got some theories but i want to hear yours yeah i think the trouble with this bill is that it only affects the two companies google and meta and you can just opt out of it um so what facebook and google are doing is not against the law it's something they can do um, and totally avoid the law completely. So the only way for the government to um, respond to that is to win the PR battle. That's what happened in Australia. They said, you know, we have this pandemic going on and we're not getting news to people. So, um, you know, that's an emergency. I it, it doesn't feel like that argument holds up as much, especially if it's not so much directed at Google, but Facebook. I don't know a lot of people that just get their news from Facebook these days. And the other part of it is, is that Google is still on board and they kind of have to split their rhetoric because Google's still saying they're not going to put news up there, but there's a negotiation going on. So the government's being nicer. Um, so it comes off a little incoherent and they can't really go full on with the argument um, because of the way the negotiations are going. And Sean, uh, just to add to the texture here, the color, the Liberal Party of Canada, all the political <laughs> parties seem really, really happy to be advertising on Facebook, Instagram, on Meta when it comes to politics and it comes to connecting with Canadians. So we're in this weird scenario where 
news is bad, but rank politics and electioneering or pre-electioneering is good. Like, when did we go down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what's interesting, guys, is when um, the press conference was announced this week, I wondered if what we might get from the minister was a some kind of compromise, perhaps delaying uh, regulations, uh, some sort of peace offering, because the government, you know, had been challenged by Meta and Google, essentially calling the government's bluff. And of course, that's it's not what happened. Precisely the opposite happened, as you said, Rudyard. The government has ramped up its and seems to have decided that this is um, an issue that sort of transcends the narrow question of how do we subsidize news media? And, you know, the government seems to envision acting almost as like a, a raison d'etre or a, a new sense of purpose after months of floundering. You know, I think we've been talking on this podcast for some time that the government increasingly feels like it's out of steam. A lot of self-imposed mistakes and errors and and all of the rest and i just can't help but think that the prime minister has decided that um taking on big tech may be what him and the government needs to essentially infuse a bit of energy uh into uh into its agenda yeah i'll turn it over to you one second but it What's extraordinary about that, guys, is if you go back to 2015, this was a government that wanted to be known for our resourcefulness, not our resources. You know, I, I don't think it would take much more than a Google search to find uh, several cases where members of the government, including the prime minister itself, sort of stood shoulder to shoulder with Facebook and Google and, and so on. Um, and so it's a kind of striking change vis-a-vis -vis big tech, which I think reflects um, broader changes occurring within kind of politics that these companies have gone from being, you know, the sort of white knights of innovation and technology and capitalism to increasingly a uh, this subject of a kind of political wedge. Um, and it, I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're mm -hmm. seeing play out this week. Well, I wonder also, I wouldn't discount the extent to which it might be a not bad political wedge. I mean, if you're in an, if you're going into an election, let's hope not, but let's say there is an election at some point, maybe it's not in the distant future. Maybe it's more in the near future. If your campaign, part of your campaign is stand, you know, the prime minister's argument, standing up for democracy, standing up for uh, news and information shared widely in society. You know, I'm willing to give Meta a pass here because I think they something their analysis shows, you know, 2% of their content further to Stuart's point is kind of news. But Google's a little bit different, guys. When you become such a monopoly power and you're, you know, hoovering up 80 odd percent of ad revenues, you're just so dominant search, you know, you've got 80 odd percent of all search volume in, in Canada. If you block news, and again, it's not just blocking the news tab. Everyone's got to realize this. It's blocking news results in search. So if you search up wildfires, you're not going to see anything in the future. If Google goes through with being offside on the act come December, 
you're not going to see anything about wildfires. You're not going to see anything about your local community news. Nothing from whatever Google chooses to determine on their own is a news organization will appear within the Google ecosystem. News alerts, news tab, search, indexing of sites. I don't know, Stuart. I'm, if, if I have a choice between two parties in the next election and one of them says, this is bad and it needs to stop and we have to stand up to Google because they're using their market power to bully us. And here I think the prime minister does have an argument. A bit like the Chinese, Google has picked the weak member, you know, the, the struggling doe in the G8, G7 herd and is trying to pull it down to intimidate the other countries, because it knows Europe is considering similar legislation. California is too. I don't know, Stuart. I think there's some good politics here. I would, I would have a hard choice if one party is willing to really stand up and make this fight and take this fight to Google versus one party that just says, oh, it's fine. Google can go back to creating its own agreements, which it did, with newspapers, 150 of them supposedly across Canada, with no transparency as, about, as to what those agreements are or what's in them, and the complete asymmetry of like, I don't know, the Saskatoon caller having to negotiate with one of the largest companies in the world, a fair agreement for the Saskatoon observers news. Like, give me a break. Yeah, I, they, this, this. The thing you can tell from the way the two companies have reacted is that Google, I think, sees that it has a vulnerability here, which is that it would be really bad to not have news on Google. Sean just mentioned that we should Google search something about the, the liberals and Google back in the day. We wouldn't be able to do that um, in about six months from now if this bill goes through. And when you just think of all of those things that you wouldn't be able to do, the PR battle that the PMO wants to fight is is there. I think it's a good battle for them. And I know actually the conservatives had toyed with the idea of slowing this bill down, obstructing it a little bit, putting some, you know, grid in the spokes. Um, they didn't do it. And I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I know they were sort of toying with the idea of, do we want to look like we're on the side of big tech? That was the political problem for them was that if you look like you're pro Facebook or you're pro Google right now, that's really bad. We've made the gatekeeper's argument about this bill, that it puts people like us behind a gatekeeper and we have to kind of suck up to get on their good side. Um, that I think that probably is resonant with Pierre Polyev and these conservatives, but the problem is you look like you're defending these companies. And I, the size of Google is almost hard to comprehend. And the prime minister mentioned it uh, this week that we're on the front lines here. U.S. senators have been mentioning it, that Canada's fighting this battle. I think people have been back-channeling messages of support to the government. So I mm. think what we're seeing here is a global effort. And, you know, as a small news organization in Canada, we're just, you know, caught up in the middle of it. Yeah, the point about the global dynamic, I think, is interesting and worth pursuing a bit. You know, um, when... Uh, Justin Trudeau was elected um, back in 2015. You'll remember that Barack Obama was still in the White House and was largely seen as the kind of face of, of progressive politics around the world. Um, I think today, in an era of of you know 
right-wing populism and all the rest, um, the prime minister has a sort of self-image as Obama's successor uh, in a way. Um, Biden himself is not, Joe Biden is not, his politics I, I think is a bit different in, if for no other reason than um, they reflect a, a kind of left-wing politics of another era. Um, and you see that sometimes play out when Biden talks about identity issues um, that you just get the sense his staff has to brief him every once in a while on what trans is or whatever. Um, and, and in that sense, I do think you're on to some things here and Roger that, um, yes, of course, there's domestic politics at play. And I suspect in the end, that's ultimately paramount. Um, but I, I could see a world where the PMO and the prime minister um, you know, kind of work themselves up about the idea that this is a fight for progressive ideas, progressive values against corporate monopolies, and that um, Canada is on the front lines on behalf of progressive politics all over the world. I mean, who knows, perhaps even it, it involves kind of aspirations for the future on the part of the prime minister to lead some international organization um, focused on these issues or or whatever, but I I think you're right to um to Sean, make the I, point. I, I would this... go one step further. I, I I think this is a potentially a bipartisan issue. Look, as a conservative, I don't like the concentration of power. I don't like it in government, and I certainly don't like it in corporations. And I I'm sorry, but I'm offended at the idea that Google would choose to use its near monopolistic position in search in Canada to punish. But break them up then. Well, right? like the government's well, not doing that. The government the, the government has imposed uh, this legislative requirement on the company, and the company had two options. One was to follow the the legislation. The other was to say, "Fine, we'll get out of the business, and then we don't have no. to compensate Look, anyone." I, I agree. The legislation probably was not the right path. The government simply wanted to tax Google. I don't know, put a special platform tax into place in Canada and extract. Why don't why do we stop at half a billion? Why don't we, you know, cover off the 35 billion that we're spending on, you know, subsidizing battery factories, giving corporate welfare <laughs> to, you know, companies that who knows five years from now that whether they'll have the winning technology and batteries. I'm all for um, going after a company like Google on the basis that you need to be careful when you have that monopolistic position in the marketplace. Your social license is incredibly fragile. And I think Google's made a mistake here. And maybe they had to, because again, they're looking at this through an international lens. They're seeing California, Brazil, the European Union setting up for similar types of legislation. But you know what? With great power comes great responsibility. And I'm sorry if your business is so damn successful and you have such a large monopolistic position in search, there are going to be some consequences for that. And I get it. Google's throwing its weight around. It's trying to push back against governments saying, yeah, one of the consequences of you guys having that position is we need functioning democracies. And one thing functioning democracies requires, Stuart, I think you would agree, is the free flow and exchange of news as factual information that is verified by journalists, that is reported out by journalists, and that people trust. Without information that we can to some extent trust in our society, I don't know what the future of democracy is. And I know this sounds like hyperbole, and it sounds maybe like the Prime Minister this week, 
but I think he's onto something here. You cannot allow corporations to launch what is effectively a strategic strike against the information sharing within a democratic society and get away with it. You can't. Yeah, I, I would. I think this is what if you watch Pablo Rodriguez this week, the way he talked about Google and the way he talked about Facebook made me think there's two entirely different conversations going or that there's no conversation going with Facebook and that Google is just needs a few things. And I think if I'm Google, the thing that I'm looking at is the idea that there's a potentially unlimited liability here. So if these links get in there X number of times, they pay X number of dollars. Um, so if someone at Post Media learns how to make a bot that just posts news links, I mean, there's a question of how much money could you get out of that? Um, so I think they're just trying to solve problems like that. Um, but I think you're exactly right that Google just can't do this. They'll put themselves at too much risk. Um, and then when it goes worldwide, they'll have the same argument in about a hundred jurisdictions. John, let me give you the last word on this. Cause I know maybe you and I disagree on this. Maybe <laughs> you feel that, you know, these corporations should have the autonomy to make whatever business decisions. And again, I, this is a fair argument, make business decisions that are based on the interests of their shareholders, right? I mean, that's how corporations operate. That's how they should operate. That's what their ethics demand. I just think what's different here is, is the near monopolistic position that Google has in search. And, and I just can't imagine, you know, waking up in a country come December where not only it would be existing links are purged, but as you say, the entire back catalog, the greatest hits of Canadian news index searching going back to the, I don't know how far is gone. It's like an, it's like an, a lobotomy of the kind of memory information section, you know, part of your brain when it comes to, you know, how we think as citizens, the information that we need to make informed choices about complex issues. Yeah, I, as I say, I, I I don't have any trade or truck for Google. In fact, I, I, as you were speaking, I pulled up a column I wrote about Google in June 2020, uh, where I make the case that it's there is something problematic about the fact that Google is the leading trading venue, the leading intermediary between buyers and sellers, and the largest seller seller of advertising space itself. As I put in that piece, it's it's the equivalent of the Toronto Stock Exchange owning the largest electronic trading platform and itself being one of the largest market participants selling its own wares. So I, I think the case for uh, antitrust yeah. may be strong. It just seems to me that this is a crisis precipitated by the government. Uh, and now that the crisis is playing itself out, it seems odd to me then having caused it to then blame others. Uh, I, I think the ultimate responsibility lies with the government that made this bet that these companies would accept the consequences of C-18. Um, and they're saying they won't. And as you say, the one thing we can certainly agree on is that Canadians will be the worst for it. Okay. Awesome. Sean, we'll give you the last word on that topic. I'm sure we'll be back at it uh, as it develops in the days and weeks to come. Let's keep though on the technology theme on the second half of the show. I want to dig into threads with you guys. It's the new meta project product that's there as a supposed Twitter destroyer, Twitter killer. I guess the question is, has Elon Musk already written the uh, requiem for Twitter and his management of the platform for the last year? 
Let's talk about this and link it to our discussion of CAT because I think there's some interesting connections. We'll get that for you right after the break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated well with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming welcome back to the hub roundtable Rudy griffiths here executive director of the hub i'm joined by sean spear editor at large Stuart thompson our editor-in-chief, and I was I had a news alert during the break that there's a rumor that uh, Brady is dating Kardashian, which is a sign of the apocalypse, and uh, it's coming soon. It means that artificial general intelligence is not simply five, ten years away. It's tomorrow, and we know because this horrible crossing of the stars, this bizarre monster child, Tom Brady, Kim Kardashian, my universe is rocked. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, let's talk about threads. Uh, it's the new platform by Meta, by Facebook, Instagram, to basically take on um, Twitter uh, directly, I guess, slightly larger char character count, Stuart. Um, you're a kind of digital denizen uh, of these platforms. How do you think the media is going to look at this? I've got some opinions on this. I think it certainly looks a lot different from Twitter to me, but I'd be curious to know, do you think it's got a potential to do what a, a well-functioning, properly led, properly managed Twitter could or should be doing if Elon Musk wasn't the CEO? Yeah, I think the first thing I realized, and I think a lot of people are realizing is that I haven't been on Instagram in a couple of years. And the people that are in my follow list on Instagram are very different than my Twitter follow list. It's just a different crew. And when I was on threads, it just was like nothing I was expecting at all. Um, it's a little underwhelming. And I've always kind of thought that Twitter is just text. It's it's not a hard app to make. There's nothing hugely innovative about it. It's kind of just something magical. And it, it caught something with the people that were on there um, in, in the way that you could kind of keep the conversation going. I do wonder if maybe we've lost that though. Like if there was something special there that's just gone. And I know that most of us who are journalists, we got into journalism because, you know, we were idealists, but also we wanted to write things and produce things and then have people look at them and say, we did a good job. That's, I think, a lot of the reason that I got into journalism and a lot of my colleagues too. And Twitter was like a, put that on steroids. It just was a dopamine hit every 30 seconds. And I think that 
if you can't make that, it's kind of based on the community and partly based on the tech, um, you're not going to get people. And it has been interesting to see people float around all these different replacements that I think are just not working. Um, I wonder if maybe this type of thing is just gone forever. I'll, I'll bring up two points and then turn it over to you, Rudyard, because you're our resident technology enthusiast. Um, I should preface both of these observations are not unique to me. Uh, they reflect kind of reading that I've done over the past couple of days. The, the first, with respect to Threads itself, what makes it unique relative to some of the failed Twitter alternatives is that it rests on the subscriber user base of Instagram, which is in the billions. And so it's not having to start from scratch like others have. It actually starts from a foundation that itself is larger than Twitter if it can convert those users into Threads users. The one challenge is what you raised, Stuart, which is the types of people who are drawn to Instagram as an audio and visual um, medium may not be the type of people who are interested in a text-based one. And I think that I, was the challenge before Zuckerberg. I, I, in fact, I read somewhere that perhaps one of the reasons he's doing this cage match with Elon Musk is to appeal to men um, who don't use Instagram uh, as much, um, but will be... Uh, fundamental to the ultimate success uh, or failure of threads. The second thing I just raised quickly about Twitter, one wonders, guys, if um, on one hand, it is a kind of useful and interesting um, platform for the distribution of information and so on, but it just can't be effectively monetized. And in that sense, one wonders if the long-term sustainability of something like Twitter is actually something more like the Wikipedia model, which is an, a nonprofit um, uh, that isn't searching for ways to try to monetize the platform. It, it exists for the reason that you mentioned, Stuart. It exists for information as an end in itself. Uh, I, I think Musk has been searching around for ways to get money out of out of Twitter, and I think what's become increasing here is that may just not be possible. I, I, I don't know, Twitter, Rudyard, what do you think? Yeah. Well, two comments, and then one thing that is kind of cool about this, which is worth thinking about. The two comments are, will you be able to post Canadian news links or news stories on threads? <laughs> Probably not. So, like, what is the value to that? Like, Twitter without news? Like, what is that? I just, like... Mentally, that challenges me. Um, so that's number one. Number two, yeah, Zuckerberg's got 3 billion daily users. I think this is strategically a dumb move. I think what this does is it just lines you up for what we were talking about before. It just lines you up for the antitrust faction. You're, you're taking over another thing. You're mm -hmm. creating another, in his view, his goal, another billion user platform at what point is enough enough and at what point are you just waving a red flag in front of nation states that are getting frankly increasingly pissed off and frustrated with your monopoly position so you're going to add another monopoly vertical you own instagram you uh, you have facebook and now you have threads and you have whatsapp like i I just think this is all pure Silicon Valley, you know, ego. It's, it's just like more, 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 more. And I think it's, 
I think it's dumb. I think it's going to lead to some really bad outcomes for the, co- for the company. I think it's going to move up the antitrust sentiment that's already out there and it's growing. Now, the one cool thing about it, which I've read about, which I think could suggest a more democratic kind of future for social media is that Threads has adopted this more open protocol like Mastodon and some of these other smaller pro, uh, smaller uh, platforms that are emulating Twitter where you can move your followers out of one platform into another. So your followers go with you. You own the audience. I mean, that's what we love about podcasting at the hub in a way is that, you know, Apple doesn't own our listeners. We can work with any, you know, podcast distributor who chooses to push our audio to whatever podcast platform. We own the content. We own the downloads. Our audience can find us through different ways. So I think to Meta's credit, that's interesting. It's kind of democratic. It mirrors some of what they're doing around AI, which is that they've chosen to go at a policy level with an open source platform on their AI programs. So other people are going to be able to look in, see what they're doing and how they're doing it. So there are some things that Meta is evolving, which are showing, I think, transparency and are empowering users. I just think the larger concept itself, particularly in the Canadian context where news, I assume, would be banned from threads and this idea of courting you know, a monopolistic red flag that, you know, affects all the other parts of your business model. What do you think, Stuart? Yeah, I, I'm i increasingly wondering if people might think, why why am I on this thing anymore? Um, like we, a lot of journalists have realized that, you know, originally we were on there to drive traffic towards our stories. And then it sort of became clear that people weren't actually clicking on anything on Twitter. They were just retweeting or they were pretending they had read it and arguing based on the headline. And we've found some joy through targeted advertising, getting stuff to the hub, but it's very rare that it comes from a personal post. And when you think about the ravages that it um, takes on your attention span and the way it takes you out of the work you're actually doing that's important, I... I haven't been on Twitter in two months and I actually think it's been good for my brain. Yeah. And I got into threads and it was, I, you know, it was strange. Because the hives it was, broke out. You just had a <laughs> kind of digital hive breakout. So, but it was weird because it was all these people from Instagram who have this kind of weird positivity that I didn't like either. It was just a strange <laughs> vibe that I didn't like. You wanted some like really good doom scrolling. Yeah. Like threads if I wanna, is just if not going to deliver. That's let, what I let, want. <laughs> let, me def- let me defend Twitter though. Uh, I, I actually will make the case i think i am smarter and better informed because of the existence of twitter but sean is that the twitter of a year ago or the twitter now would you not acknowledge that there's been i mean like Stuart, i i went off in fact what was kind of cool i didn't realize the twitter is i could donate and rename my account and hand it over to the hub for our podcast which was kind of neat because i felt like okay, maybe there's some value then in aggregating those followers because I give them to somebody else. But Sean, you would acknowledge that your ability to be smarter on Twitter, more informed, less bombarded by just you know Elon's new algorithm that seems to put his tweets and his bro buddy's tweets <laughs> at the top of your feed every time you open up the app is kind of annoying. 
Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, the, the best example was on Saturday, uh, Canada Day, which also just happens to be the first day of NHL free agency. And if you're a hockey fan like me, you know, one of the most important days of the year. And Twitter would have been my default way to track what was going on. And of course, without warning, um, Twitter just um, clamped down on how many tweets you could see uh, on NHL free agency day. So <laughs> like Google, I don't have any trucker trade for for uh, Twitter and Elon Musk these days. But I will say I I have a relatively I follow a relatively small number of accounts. A lot are academics or scholars. I don't follow any politicians or very few. Um, and I think it has exposed me to research and ideas and perspectives that I would have never been able to have access to. I always think about these things, guys, as a kind of nerdy teenager in Thunder Bay uh, where I grew up. I was interested in conservative ideas, which, as you can imagine, was as cool and popular as it sounds. Um, and my and because we were geographically isolated, the rise of the Internet and things like message boards became a window into a world that I didn't know. And it was a huge source of kind of affirmation and engagement and ultimately friendships. And Twitter is the kind of modern example of that. Um, it has its problems for, you know, Lord knows. Um, but I continue to value Twitter and, you know, maybe there'll be a point where it crosses a Rubicon and it's no longer useful, but I'm, I'm still, I'm still bullish on Twitter. Go, go Mastodon, Sean. <laughs> Come on. I know you're, you know, you struggle with the tech. I mean, Sean has a hard time figuring out where to plug his microphone in <laughs> for each of these podcasts. Luckily we have a mall at our Grisman to make sure that he actually does have audio um, when we're recording, but I just only in part. Um, Stuart, let me give you the last word in this segment. I mean, what do you think the future is here? I mean, Zuckerberg saying we're going to go to a billion and then start monetizing. <laughs> I just love these guys. Um, I, yeah, like you, I'm off Twitter. I, I really enjoy the additional mind share that I've reclaimed. Um, I don't think about it. I don't think about people responding to me. I don't, I don't miss it. And the last thing in the world I would do would be to kind of pollute that serenity <laughs> with a, with a kind of bastardized version of Twitter that, as you say, has all these like fitness freaks, you know, from Instagram or I don't know, people doing stupid pet tricks. And now they're in my thread with me. This is a, a new, a new kind of hell in my view. Um, hell is other people. And um, maybe that should be the slogan of, of threads. <laughs> I'm not quite that misanthropic, but I I do get that vibe a little bit. Um, and I've always felt with news, you know, it's never been a great feeling in journalism, the way the industry's gone. But I've always felt as long as there's a product that people want, human beings will find a way to sell it. It just has always been the case throughout the history of humanity. And I just couldn't imagine a market failure to the extent that news wouldn't exist. Um and I kind of feel the way the same way about this, which is that there are the the stuff that Sean talked about with the pros of social media. I mean, it made me nostalgic for all those days of that's how I connected with all these journalists that I, you know, were 
my heroes and then some of them I got to work with and, you know, I could chat to them on DMs and there was a really positive aspect of it. And I think we're sort of in this phase now where we're looking for some way to preserve the positives um, while getting rid of the increasingly abundant negatives. And it's just an awkward phase right now, I think. Um, I don't think it's going to be threads. I don't think it's going to be Twitter, um, but something will come along, I think, because if there's money to be made, it always does. Yeah, I agree. And look, maybe if Elon is listening, um, like look at what's going on with news with Google and Meta. Like maybe this is Twitter's chance to say, okay, we're really going to become the news platform and we're going to solve this problem in democratic, free and open societies about how to widely share and distribute news. Um, and we're going to work with governments and figure out a way to do that that is compliant with whatever regulatory regime is in place. I think that could be a huge new second act or third act for Twitter um, because that's the f- market failure that we're approaching right now. Okay, guys, another great conversation at the roundtable. Thanks so much uh, for your time today. We'll do this all again next Friday. And we wish our Hub listeners a terrific, hot, sticky weekend somewhere in Canada or abroad. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.